This week on Intrigued, Full Effect. As their father, there's parts of me that don't want to give up. There's parts of me that, you know, don't believe it, that that don't feel their arm. Sarah was just, she, she was just super sweet. I would do anything for her brothers, uh, just daddy's girl, you know. I mean, she was all over me, just just my baby girl. And then Jacob, I mean, he he was probably one of the sweetest souls to, to ever be on earth. I'm Shandrea Thomas, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 14 of Intrigued Full Effect. I've been away for a little while, but I am back. In this podcast, I talk about curious cases, disappearances, and other stuff. And today I'm talking about the curious case and 2014 disappearance of Jacob and Sarah Hoggle from Montgomery County, Maryland. Right now, the mother of the children, Catherine Hoggle, is charged with their murders, and she's being held in a mental facility and is currently unfit to stand trial. And she has not said where the children are to this point. Meanwhile, the father, Troy Turner, and other family members continue to search for the kids with no idea of if they're dead or alive. I spoke to Troy. I reached out to Catherine Hoggle's parents and her attorney. I also made contact with investigators and the state's attorney about the case. This is what happened. It was Sunday, September 7, 2014. Troy Turner, his children, and their mother, Catherine Hoggle, had attended a soccer game for Troy's oldest son. Now, according to Troy, the family spent quality time together that day after the game, and Troy went to work at around noon. He says that the children were at home with their mother and Catherine's father while he went to work. Then he got home just after midnight to find Catherine waiting for him at the bottom of the steps of his home. She asked for a ride to get a soda, then they returned. Troy went to bed and woke up to discover that his two youngest children, Sarah and Jacob, were missing. This is what Troy had to say about his experience that day and how the disappearances changed his life. Mr. Turner, thank you for taking the time to talk with me about the disappearance of your two children. I know it's been a rough while. You guys have been looking for them since 2014, right? Yes. So tell me about that date and tell me what happened with your children so people can understand what the what the whole situation was about. So on September 7th, 2014, um, we were actually, I had taken, I had um, called into work to let them know I was going to come in late because it was my older son's first soccer game and I wasn't going to miss it. We all got ready. Uh, we were going, took pictures, all that stuff. Everything was going well with Catherine. Uh, she was in her day program, apparently doing her medication regimen. Everything seemed to be, you know, in the right direction. She seemed to be as normal as she had been in a long time. And so we took off and went to the soccer game. Her dad actually uh, coached the team. And we went to the game. Everything was great there. Got snow cones afterwards. And then headed off to her mom's house. Her mom had a friend in town from California. And Mm -hmm. they were, you know, off doing their thing in Georgetown or whatever. Uh, I was told by Catherine that they were on their way back. And so we headed over there. When we got there, her brother was upstairs sleeping. And nobody else was there. And her father pulled up. As I was not to the car to get something for the kids, and I talked to him for a brief second. Uh, I said, "Are you going to be here?" He said, "I got this." He you know, told me I could go ahead on back to work. 
We walked in. I hugged and kissed the kids. Said bye to them. Told them I loved them. The kids were playing with blocks, watching uh, something on TV. I don't remember exactly what it was. It was, you know, it was a kid's show. And I left. I went to work that day. And, the, um, you know, as far as I knew, everything was fine. And wound up working until it wound up working late that evening till about 10 o'clock or so uh got got a call from Catherine and she had asked if I could go to uh the store said we were out of some things texted me a list Wegmans around that area is open till midnight so I was like that's fine you know it's about a, a 45 minute drive or so home I would get there in time to go there finished up shopping I was leaving there around midnight just you know just before midnight drove home and whenever i pulled up to the apartments catherine was sitting outside on the steps so at that point she walked over i said what are you doing out here she said that she was out there waiting to help me carry the groceries up because we had lived all the way up on like the fourth floor and she asked if we could go pick up uh, a dr pepper from mcdonald's down the street because we didn't have any soda uh, she would get tired from her medication. She said that the sugar and the caffeine helped her stay awake for a little bit when she needed to. Uh, I said, is your father here? She showed me his car. He said he was there. The kids were in bed sleeping already. So I said, fine, we'll just run five minutes up the road real quick and do that. We went, got the Dr. Pepper, came back, took the groceries up. And then, um, let me see, it was, it was almost, you know, it was what, 1245, something like that. heard her father upstairs in the loft where he slept whenever he slept over he was staying at that time between my place and Lindsay's place her mom uh i went ahead and um and basically she laid down on the couch because that's where she was sitting because we hadn't really been in a relationship at this point for a while i put on actually i remember exactly i put on news radio a dvd of it in for probably about like 10 minutes and then went into the bedroom uh Typically, I would have went into all the kids' rooms and um, prayed beside her bed and kissed them goodnight, even if they were sleeping. I was dead tired, and the one time I didn't do it, you know, I was like, well, if I wake one of them up, then I'm up. So I just went to bed. Troy says when he woke up the next morning, something was off. When I got up the next morning, my older son woke up a little bit earlier than normal. Then the alarm goes off about 15 minutes early and woke me up. Uh, I always got him ready for school, took him, you know, in the morning and stuff to the bus stop. And whenever I went to get him ready, I realized that there was nobody there. Jacob was gone. Sarah was gone. Catherine was gone. Randy wasn't there, which I didn't expect him to be there because he went to work at like five, six in the morning, like really early. And I checked the drawer where I kept my wallet and my keys. They weren't there. Looked outside. The car was gone. and started calling her phone and then i heard it vibrating on the end table so she had left her phone there so i didn't want to freak out my older son uh you know because he was only five at the time got him ready for school quickly while he was getting ready when i could kind of step away from him i called uh lindsay to see if Catherine was with her she wasn't called randy um to see if he knew where her and the kids were he didn't 
none of them had any idea where they were. So I told both of them, hey, I'm about to call the police. So um, if you want to give her a call real quick, then let me know if you know something. So I didn't hear back from either one of them. So I called 911. Um, I put him on the bus first. And then as soon as the bus, as soon as he got on, I called 911. The dispatcher picked up and we started, uh, I started kind of reporting what was going on, explaining the situation that I had had her committed in 2013. She wasn't supposed to be alone with the kids. She didn't have a license anymore, wasn't supposed to be driving. Uh, at this point, while I'm talking to 911, she pulls up. And I said, well, she's right here. The lady said, well, would you like for me to hold on to make sure everything's okay? I said, yes, please. I walked over, talked to her and said, you know, well, where are the kids? They weren't in the, they weren't in the van. She said that they, you know, she had taken them to daycare. She went through the situation of how she took them there, which is exactly what we had been discussing doing and how we did it with the older son previously. Uh, some of the daycares give you a trial day to make sure the kids are comfortable there. You can go check mm -hmm. it out, things like that. So I said, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be alone with the kids. You're not supposed to be driving. You know, like, what are you doing? And she said that I, she knew I was tired because I had been working a lot and hadn't been sleeping much because I had also been taking care of the kids and all that stuff. So she said that she was basically taking <laughs> for me. I said, well, that's not doing me favors. You're not supposed to be alone with them. This isn't supposed to happen. Don't, don't ever let it happen again. I had her get out, walk around, and get in the passenger side. I told the lady at 911, I said, I think everything is fine. You know, she took them to daycare, whatever. So at that point, um, I had previously, before the family had said that she wanted, that they were going to be there with the kids and her so that they could have more time with their mom. Because in my mind, that's what I thought was the best thing was the kids have time with their mom in a healthy, safe way, you know, the healthiest way, safest way possible. Uh, clearly, looking back when I was wrong, but I I agreed to allow them to be there with her all the time, so she could actually spend time with them rather than paying someone and then and then having them elsewhere whenever I was at work. So we we were working on ways to have the kids be home whenever my oldest son got off school and stuff, and have someone be there with them. So I started talking. To, we talked to the people about working out a schedule where um, one of them could be there. You know, when the kids got out, when um, when my oldest son got out of school and the other two would be, you know, coming out of their um, preschool daycare. And or whenever I was going to work, if I, you know, if I was going to be there during the day. So we spent probably an hour on the phone with them trying to work out scheduling. We had also been looking into au pairs at that point. So then we went to the clubhouse of the apartments we lived at. I uh, got on the computer there. And spent probably another hour doing that. And looking back on it now, obviously, this was all stuff just, you know, buying time. So then I took her to her day program where she, uh, you know, on that particular day, this is Monday now we're talking about, uh, they did the, um, the testing for the medications, like blood testing, stuff like that, did an evaluation, and then she would do her classes. So from about... 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning until about two she was there i ran some errands went back to get her at two 2 15 somewhere in between there <laughs> excuse me usually she would be outside waiting for me but this time i wound up actually texting her and waiting about like probably about another five or ten minutes and then she finally came strolling out and she gets in the car we start driving we're driving back towards the apartment 
And in between time, I had talked to her mom, Lindsay. I'd talked to her dad, Randy. Uh, Lindsay was acting kind of strange to me because she immediately got in her car once I talked to her and realized this and started driving around Germantown looking in different daycares for the kids. So that kind of, I guess, kind of alarmed me a little bit that she was doing all that. And it was, it was almost like a subconscious thing because I don't really know what alarm I felt. I just felt like I was like, this is weird. So let me, you know, check on the kids. So I said to her, you know, as we were driving back to the apartment, we had um, gone past the corner of 118 and 355, which is Germantown, Frederick Road there in Germantown. And after we got past there, I said, you know what? I want to I want to go see where the kids are. I want to see this daycare. Because usually, like, I wouldn't put them in there unless I went and almost spied, if that may sound weird, but, you know, for a day or two and saw what was going on. So we turned around and went back. There was road work going on, and we wound up literally sitting there for probably about a half hour or so. So by the time we got through the road work, it was almost time to pick up my older son from the bus stop. So I looked at her, I remember actually, kind of word for word, I said, I said, I can't keep my little man waiting, so we'll go back again, and then we'll just go up there and get the other kids. She said, that's fine, too. We turned around, uh, went back up, got him, went back through the road work again. So now by now, it's actually like, you know, 3.30, almost 4 o'clock. So it's, it's about time to pick him up anyway. So we're driving down 3.55, and that goes from Germantown into Gaithersburg, eventually into Rockville, Bethesda, so on and so forth. And she's telling me, you know, the, the, uh, this, um, this place is in Germantown. And at first, where she had made it sound like it was, it was by the place that we had had my older son in daycare previously in his preschool. So I go, oh, is it this one over here? She said, no, that's not it. It's down farther. I said, okay. So we keep driving down. And I was like, which turn is it? And she was like, I'll just keep going. So I said, are you sure it's in Germantown? She said, yeah. I said, 100% positive. She said, yeah. I said, then I need to make a U-turn because we just crossed over into Gaithersburg. So I turned back around and I said, where is it? She goes, oh, well, it's somewhere up here. I said, I said, Catherine, what street is it on? She said, I don't know the street name. I said, what's the place called? She said, I don't know the name. of it. I said, well, give me their phone number and I'll call them. She said, I don't have their phone number. I said, you mean to tell me you dropped our kids off somewhere? You don't know the name of the place. You don't know what street it's on or where it is. And you don't even have a phone number. And she looked at me. She said, well, they have my number. Okay, that's strange. So okay. what happens What happens after you guys search for this alleged daycare that seems to not exist? Well, yeah. So at this point, what happens like now is that's whenever I called Lindsay. And she wasn't that far away. And I had her meet me because I felt like I was going to explode. Uh, remember, my older son's in the back seat at this point. So I had her meet me. Um, we pull off to the side of it's a road called Game Preserve Road off to the side. Uh, I took my older son, put him in her car. And I said, take him with you home. Do not, you know, do do not bring him back until I pick up the other kids. Uh, and she, you know, she was asking Catherine, you know, where are they or whatever. And Catherine was like, oh, they're in daycare. And. Uh, when she's pulling off with my older son, Catherine completely freaked out and blew up, chasing the car, trying to hit it, cursing, whatever. Mm. So it made no sense what she was saying at that point, because Lindsay had watched the kids a ton. Mm -hmm. um, we get back in the car. She is repeatedly calling her mom and her mom is like, well, look, you know, I'm not bringing him back until you go pick up the other two. So 
we're driving up. We pull off at um, Fox Chapel Shopping Center, and I'm like, where are my children? And she keeps saying they're in a daycare. I'm like, take me to my kids now or we have serious problems. She's So she continues to say they're in a daycare. So <laughs> she takes me on a wild goose chase to one over by the high school. I went to over at Seneca Valley. I go in there, and I ask about the kids. They say, we don't have any kids here by name. So I describe them. They said, no, they're not here. So I walk back out. I go, the kids aren't in here. And she goes, well, did you get the information? I said, what information? She goes, well, I thought we were checking, you know, checking it out and getting the applications and the information for it. I said, no, you didn't. Wow. Okay. So yeah. that sounds like it's going all over the place. You guys are like going in circles, it sounds like. Yes. At that point, um, I believe I made one more stop to see if she was telling the truth about another daycare. And then I started, I, I started driving. She said, well, where are you going? I said, to the police station. She said that um, she was like, well, we don't need to go there. I said, yes, we do. I said, you're not telling me where my children are. So she goes, well, I'll take you right to them. I said, you're not, you don't even know where they are. She said, yes, I do. She said, they're at the one on Bethesda Church Road um, up in Damascus. <clears throat> so I stopped and actually checked to see if there was even one there because there was no reason for her to know it's there um, because we've never really gone out there or anything. Like, to my knowledge, she hadn't spent any time out there. And there was one. So I was like, oh, I guess that's the one then. So I said, okay. And she said, well, you know, obviously she said, I checked him in. I need to be awake to go in and get him with you. She said, uh, can we stop and grab a soda? Because I took my medication when I was in day classes and whatever. So I said, fine. So we went to Chick-fil-A. Um, it's right by the police station. She goes in there and I went in with her. Uh, she said she had to go to the bathroom. Uh, she asked for the phone. Like, she didn't bring her phone in, so she asked for my phone to call her mom to let her know that, um, uh, that you know, that we were going to get him and everything was fine. I said, that's, you know, that's a good call to make. Cool. So she does that, comes out, gets the soda. We're walking out, and she says that she wants to get a refill. It's, her soda's going while I look at it. I said, that's fine. I said, hurry up, get it, and let's go get the kids. So she goes back in. After about three or four minutes, I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, well, you don't have to wait in line for a refill. You just go up to the front. So I walk back in, and she's gone. Mm. So she went out the other side of the building. Wow. So what happened after that? So I walked out the other side. I look around the parking lot, you know, seeing if I can see her walking off or something. She went to, I went directly to the police station. So when I get in there... I tell the lady at the front why I'm there. I called her mom, my mom, and Dre, my friend who lives right, who at the time lived right down the street from there. Uh, and she knew him too, so I figured maybe she just went to his house. So he hadn't heard from her. He came directly up when I told him what was going on as well. So us four are in the police station at this point. Uh, the police come out, and I'm telling them what happened. And her mom said something about, well, Jacob wasn't there. She didn't come back with Jacob last night. And I said, what? And she goes, oh, my God, you didn't know that Jacob wasn't there last night. No, Randy didn't tell you. I said, no, no one told me. We're going to pick up from that spot, but let me just go back to the beginning really quickly. Okay. okay the, the first thing I'm curious about is, so what was your relationship with Catherine at the time? Were you just, were you co-parenting? Were you living together? I'm just trying to understand that dynamic. I mean, I, guess, I, mean I, I, I don't know if you could really call it co-parenting because she wasn't really parenting. You know what I mean? Like she wasn't really allowed to even. Um, okay. I mean, she, 
I guess like whenever we were there together or when she was there with her family with the kids, she was kind of parenting or whatever because she wasn't allowed to be alone with them or anything like that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we were kind of co-parenting. Uh, I was basically, like I said, I mean, that was my kid's mom. So I was trying to figure out what to do with her. We were, you know, possibly working towards her pushing back into her mom's house or something like that. Uh, we weren't in a relationship. She was sleeping on the couch. I was in the bed. So everyone was at your house. So where the yeah. kids were that night was your house where her dad was staying was your house that night. Right. Except for it turns out that one, if not two of the kids weren't there. So Jacob's crib was in the room. That's why I slept in the bed. And then she took the couch because I was in there with Jacob. When Jacob couldn't sleep, what he would do is he would climb out of his crib and go into my older son's room and lay in his bed and sleep. So I thought that's where Jacob was that night. I thought he was in there with my older son sleeping. So let me ask you this question, just so I'm clear. Why is it, because you're saying that she couldn't be with the kids alone. Why is that the situation? Why could she not be with them by herself? So in December of 2013, I had her committed. She was making choices that we were going to put herself or the kids in danger. Um, she uh, at one point pulled the car over and um, and kind of was like, or I pulled the car over. I was driving. She asked me to pull over. We got out of the, she asked to step out of the car and talk to me. I didn't know if she wanted to talk to me about something she wanted to talk about in front of the kids or what it was. And she is covering her mouth kind of like an NFL football coach. Like you don't want your lips red for the play or something as if someone is watching us and and I don't even remember exactly what she said, but it was something that was completely like out of pocket. And I was just kind of like, what? Um, she started to um, say things like if I said something about where we were going out loud, she said that I was basically saying to let someone know who I guess who she thought was listening where we were going to be. There was like weird things like that. It was something that had progressed. It felt like it progressed with every pregnancy. Um, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you. At, at what point did you discover or uncover that there was some sort of, um, you know, mental situation going on? Like how long had she been? Until I actually like, figured it out. And maybe I'm super dense, but it wasn't until after Jacob was born is whenever I kind of figured it out. And it progressively gotten worse from the time my oldest son, when she was pregnant with him to Jacob being born. It, it seemed like with each pregnancy there was like a spike and then it would kind of calm down. So I didn't know if it was hormones. I didn't know if it was, you know, part of an imbalance that pregnancy caused. I didn't know anything um, in terms of that kind of stuff. I was very ignorant to, you know, mental illness, anything like that. And it was kind of a slow progression, you know, throughout that, that four or five year period. And, and by the time I really realized that, Hey, there's something really wrong here. It did going pretty steep. No, and, and looking back on it, I go, wow, I was stupid. But at the time in the middle of it, I just didn't know. And I guess sometimes you just don't know what you don't know. But we, it got to a point to where, you know, she wasn't supposed to be driving. Her her license had expired. Um, and I had had a meeting with Randy and Lindsay, her parents. And uh, I basically asked them to um, get together with me. And the meeting basically was just, look, here's what's going on. Um, Lindsay realized something was going on as well, like something was really wrong at that point. We were standing there talking, and I said, look, so, you know, we want to get through Christmas with the kids, and then we just need to let her know, look, here's the deal. Either you can get help or we can get you help and, you know, basically, you know, 
have you committed, whatever you want to call it, pink slip you, whatever. Lindsay agreed immediately. She was like, I, you know, I, I agree wholeheartedly. This is what needs to be done. When we were talking about it, Randy was wishy-washy on it and was saying, you know, he didn't know about that. And he figured that we could just get her to get help and that he didn't want to do all the, you know, committing and stuff. So Lindsay started completely going off at him, yelling, screaming, cursing him, poking him in the chest, uh, basically saying that, uh, you know, he was, in other words, very wishy-washy with her and enabled her and things like that, and that he kind of rolled over for him and was manipulated by her. So after, at the end of the conversation, we all determined that that's what was going to happen, and we were just going to try to get the kids through Christmas with their mom. This would have been probably right around December 15th to 17th, somewhere or something like that. Because it was within literally a day or two later that she took one of my cars and went down um, into D.C. and was calling me because she was pretty much running out of gas somewhere on Florida Avenue. And her ankle was hurt. She could barely drive on it or something. So I don't know what she had been doing. So I go down there, put gas in the car, and I'm going, okay, so... You drive in front because I didn't trust her. I'm like, um, or no, she just, she said she didn't know where she was going. So I was like, you know what? You can follow me. So we start pulling out and all of a sudden she makes a turn off. So I get behind her and I'm following her. I'm going, where are you going? So I called her and I said, where are you going? She goes, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and finish up. Whatever. I said, no, you're not. You need to head back. I turned around and didn't see the car. So then I called her again. I said, so I said, you know, what are you doing? And she was like, oh, you know, I'm just going to go off this way. I said, no, you're not. I said, here's the deal. I said, I'm tired. I have to work in the morning. It's late. I said, I'm going home and I'm going to sleep. I said, when I get home, if I do not know for a hundred percent fact, if I don't hear from, if you are not in the house or I do not hear from your mom that you are there, and hear you in the background and know that you are at your mom's house with the car and it's parked and the keys are turned over, I'm calling the police and reporting it's stolen. That's when Troy says his situation started to escalate. She actually went ahead and checked herself in instead of being like committed at that point. Mm -hmm. And they had her on whatever floor it is where, you know, the, where they have it locked down and, you know, it's like kind of the um, floor for um, mentally ill people and stuff. And when someone opened up the door to go out, she took off. So she got out of the hospital and they were just like, well, there's nothing we can do about it at this point. She checked herself in. So she's just leaving against, you know, AMA against medical advice. Um, so I called the police and they were like, well, you know, we already picked her up on that order. We can't repick her up. All we can do is pull up and say, hey, can you please get in so we can take you back? And she can just say no and walk off. So I had to go back down and refile. So I filed this time. And a judge came in um, at like one in the morning or whatever time it was and talked to me. Essentially, she checked herself in just to make sure I'm clear. So she checks herself in in December of 2013. Then she takes off in the middle of that process of getting well. And then she shows up back to your house with her dad in his car. And that's when you call the police and they pick her up. And that at that point, you have her committed. Well, I had had her committed the night before when she escaped from the hospital. Again. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what oh, I'm yes, saying. Yeah, oh. that was whenever I did it. Yeah, so that was when they were picking her up from that order. Yes, that's correct. Well, she She's in the situation where she's now she's officially committed, right? 
So the police pick her up. You said the sheriff's deputies pick her up. They put her in the back of the car. They take her to a mental hospital to get some sort of treatment. How long is she in this facility? So it took about 30 days. They said that she was confident to walk out of there. Um, my theory at the time was 30 days was how long the insurance covered it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. she gets out and it wasn't that long, probably about a week or so later, because uh, she was in a day program there. So since I worked in the evenings, I was driving her to Baltimore every day for the day program. And then she started acting weird and saying things or whatever about like an exorcism that someone wanted to do on her, which actually had more to do when she described it with genital mutilation and stuff like that, as opposed to what you would think of an exorcism. When you say that she was in a day program, what exactly is that? It's an outpatient thing instead of being an inpatient where you're actually committed. So you go and they do therapy and um, whatever it is, you know, make sure your meds are right. Take, you know, you take your medication there. They order it for you. Uh, it's kind of what they would do if you were in there, like in terms of whenever they have the therapy in the classes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Except for you just don't stay there overnight and you and you know and you're just there for the therapy and the classes. So you're not just there in between time all day. It's like you know like a five day whatever it was like six or eight hours whatever. So essentially, she goes into this facility. Now this is around December of 2013. So you guys are heading into January of you're in 2014. I'd imagine you're pretty close to that. Are we're you already in, into? Yeah, you're we're in, beyond 2014. Okay, so you're beyond 2014. What happens at that point that leads up to the date when the children disappeared? Well, this, that's what I'm getting to. So when that happened, I told the day program what was going on, and then she was put back in. This time it was for a more extended period. It was somewhere, I can't remember exactly, but it might have been closer to 60 days. And then they brought her back to competency to be on the street, not, you know, not in terms of the court competency we're talking about. Um, we had a family meeting, and they said, you know, I, I brought up, to the doctor that I didn't want her to be alone with the kids, period. Uh, the doctor said it was, you know, that was the right way to go. Um, they had diagnosed her with schizoaffective disorder. And from there, you know, she went into a halfway house originally where they do, you know, an intense program or whatever. And so a few times a week, I would pick her up and bring her to visit the kids and then take her back. And then eventually after that, so I believe it was like 90 days of that. And then she was home and there's a day program that she was in where from 10 to like two, she would be there in um, classes and stuff. So she's in and out, she's in and out. And then she's going through this facility, this day, uh, day facility. She's uh, in a halfway house. So let's say we jump to summer of, um, you know, of 2014 leading into September, into the fall. What, what's going on at that where point? We are. Right. That's exactly where we are now. So, okay. so. At, yeah. So at this point, you know, everything is going well throughout the summer. She uh, somewhere around like late May or June, something like that. If I remember correctly, I'm not great with dates, but somewhere around there, she came home, you know, to where she was going to be staying at the apartment. You know, everything seemed to be going really well in terms of her being there, uh, I was still taking the kids to the family that was actually babysitting them when I was at work. Uh, and at this point, that's when her family said, okay, um, you know, we, w- we would rather, you know, spend more time with them. And then she could be there and 
and they could have time with their mother in more of a health, you know, in a healthy way, like you're saying that you want. And I said, okay, that sounds good. Mm -hmm. So everything's going good until you get to this day in September. Right. So we hit September. Um, My oldest is back in school, you know, and uh, soccer season starts up. Um, Everything's going well. Still, you know, I'm still spending time with the kids, taking them to the park every day, uh, hang out with them. You know, when my youngest would go to school, then Sarah, Jacob and I would go do things. Just so I'm clear on what happened during the month of December of 2013, there's some erratic behavior. She's taking cars. She's going in and out of mental facilities. You guys are leading into January. She's getting treatment all through the summer. There's treatment. She's going in and out of mental you know, treatment situations. You get to September. You're like, oh, things are going well. And then the day in September occurs where, you know, you discover that your children have disappeared. You're with her searching for them. And then all of a sudden she bolts out of the the the, um, the restaurant. What happens after that? So you call the police. I'm just kind of backtracking a little bit. So you call the police and then you guys are on the hunt for her. Right. The police um, an officer comes out to take my report and speak with me. And that was whenever Lindsay piped up and said that, you know, well, you know, Jacob, she had come back, you know, the evening before without Jacob. And that's when I was like, what What do you mean Jacob wasn't there? And she said, oh, my God, you didn't know? I said, no, I didn't know. She said, Randy never told you? I said, no, nobody told me. I was like, you never told me, Randy never told me, nobody told me that she left. First of all, you know, I'm like, how did she even go with him? So at that point, that's where I find out the whole story about she was she had supposedly told Randy that she was going for a pizza, like to pick up a pizza from Pizza Hut down the road. Uh, She was taking Jacob with her. He threw her the keys to his car and let her leave with my son. So she disappears for apparently several hours with Jacob. So you get back home at around midnight um, and then you don't realize that they're missing because you were tired and you just, you know, th- that particular night you just didn't, just went to bed. Okay. Right. And then you discover that, that both kids were missing the, the next the morning. morning. So they said she took Jacob. What about the other child? So that's, that's what I'm getting to now. So okay. first of all, you know, when she came back, they asked, you know, well, where's Jacob? She said that she dropped him off for a sleepover at our downstairs neighbors in the apartments we lived in, which made no sense. So our downstairs neighbors had a son that was right around my oldest son's age, and they were friends. Um, and Sarah might play with them sometimes, you know, because she was she was a strong girl and she might play with the boys and stuff, the older boys, whatever. But that was that was my oldest son's friend. Jacob was two. It makes no sense to have a two-year-old sleepover with, you know, a five-year-old, essentially. He was like four and a half, about to be five. He was just a little bit younger than my older son. Um, also, their mom had just had a baby. You're not having a two-year-old over for a sleepover when you have a five-year-old and a newborn. It makes no sense. So she had said that, that he was doing a sleepover there. Um. Sarah was still there at this time, by all accounts. Then they go back to my apartment around somewhere between, I believe, between like 830 and nine o'clock or something. There was a um, speeding camera ticket of the car going home. And it was sometime right around then. It was like right around, I think, like maybe even 915. But they left around like nine or so. So they get home right around probably between 920, 930. 
And my oldest son told me, you know, and this is even back then, that he remembers Sarah being there. So I, so I believe him that Sarah was there. That's really the only reason I even believe that she was there when they went back. Um, here's where, for me, it gets murky, because the original thought process was that she got up early before everyone and took Sarah, like, you know, in the morning. However, the fact that she was sitting outside and stuff, I'm wondering if she didn't grab her dad's keys off of the countertop and take Sarah that night. And mm. the whole point of me going to the store and stuff was just keeping me out later. At what point does the search for your children start? It starts on that on that date of September. So here's here's kind of what happened was. Um, <coughs> so that Tuesday night, um, they're searching, you know, the um, the minivan stuff they do, the whatever forensics they do, uh, you know, because that was one of the cars she had had access to in that time frame that she had taken that morning. Uh, nothing shows up in the car then. They ask about Randy's car, but he was still in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Even whenever he got calls that his grandkids were missing, nobody knew what was going on. He didn't come back. Um, so that car that she initially took and possibly took both kids in was not around for over 24 hours. And no one had the local police there go and pick it up and do anything to it. Troy says on the day that Catherine disappeared, the search for the kids also starts, but crews were trying to figure out exactly where to search. We're trying to figure out what to do, exactly, you know, where we can look for them, because at this point we're just thinking Catherine has the two kids, find Catherine, find the kids. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> so we kind of go places that we think that she may go. We call, like, you know, her, you know, people who she has been friends with in the past, things like that. So that whole night was kind of spent doing things like that. <clears throat> the next day, I called into work. Obviously, I'm not going to work whenever I'm looking for my kids. And I saw I'm not coming in today. So why? I said, well, two of my kids are missing. Um, so essentially, they ran a skeleton crew at work. My VP allowed people to take off if they wanted to come help. And a ton of people from my work came up. Um, we started printing off flyers and stuff. And and passing them out everywhere we could. How much time was it between the time that she took off from you on the day they disappeared compared to when you caught up with her? How did you guys discover where she was? How, many, how much time was between that? So Friday, that Friday night at about 11 or 11.30 at night, she was picked up by the police um, pulling down flyers in areas where we had been putting up flyers of her and the kids with their faces on and stuff. And so she was going through one of the apartment complexes that we were heavily putting flyers in because we thought that she would be in that area somewhere because that's where Chick-fil-A was. That's where she disappeared. So we figured not necessarily she was still there, but someone there may have seen her and noticed something. So we were heavily flyering that whole area. And um, she was going through there like she really it appears never left like a four or five block radius. So like there's on YouTube, you can find like a video of her in like a government building that she got into and spent the night in one night. You know, she was going around taking down the flyers. Her purse was full of flyers we had been putting up. Uh, someone saw them. Like, I've actually been in touch with, like, the couple who actually saw her and called the police and stuff. They came out and helped with searches. Uh, realized, you know, it was her. Um, called the police. The police picked her up um, by the Pinnacle Apartments in Germantown, Maryland. Um, you know, literally across the street from the Chick-fil-A, where we had been you know, basically centrally sending flyers out from and meeting people to go searches and stuff like that. Once she gets into custody, 
what is she telling the police or what are police telling you about where your kids are, about, you know, their interrogation of her, or their questioning of her? What are you learning from that? So she's in custody. And at this point, um, she's not telling them anything, apparently. The next morning, um, you know, they're, they're telling us that, hey, we're going to question, you know, we'll figure out where the kids are. We'll get back to you or whatever. Now, within 48 hours, they had pretty much turned it into a homicide investigation. That's why I met Dimitri Rubin, the lead detective and stuff. And I, I figured it out because they had a lot of dogs, you know, sniffing in the woods. And, and it didn't seem like dogs that were looking for live people. It seemed like they were cadaver dogs. And so um, Dimitri comes up to me and pulls me off to the side. And um, when we're at Chick-fil-A, passing out flyers and doing all the stuff we were doing there. And he goes, hey, I just need to talk to you for a second. And he goes, look. He goes, I want you to hear it first from me. You know, I don't want you to hear it on the news, but we're turning this into a homicide investigation. I said, I know. Mm. I said, you know, I, I saw, you know, I've seen what's been going on. I, I realized that. You, I said, this isn't news. I said, you guys did that about, you know, 24 hours ago or so. And he was like, yeah. He said, but I wanted you to hear it from us before you hear it from the news. Well, initially, you know, whenever I meet with the police and stuff, they're telling me, well, you know, these are our best detectives in this major crime scene. That's why we're doing this. A uh, police officer, I'm not going to say, you know, her name or anything, but she pulled up into the Chick-fil-A parking lot while we were passing out. And she had tears in her eyes and she's telling me, you know, that that she doesn't understand, you know, at first why they're doing this because she feels like they still want to look for him alive. I understood why. At the same time, you know, I'm still looking for my kids alive at that point. Has there ever been any sightings? What are the streets saying? I mean, are you getting in any information, any theories about what may have taken place? Anything? Well, I think almost everyone has theories, um, you know, who reaches out to us. From your standpoint, do you still feel like your children are alive? Do you feel like she took them and gave them to someone? Or do you think that she really took their lives? Uh, the logical answer is Catherine Hoggle killed my children. So, you know, as their father, there's parts of me that don't want to give up. There's parts of me that, you know, don't believe it, that, that don't feel they're gone. But at the same time, when you look at everything logically and plus me talking to her on the phone whenever she was since she's been locked up, I don't really, you know, I don't see like all this delusion or anything. And, and that's not real, um, the delusional part of it. And maybe at one point it was when I had her committed or whatever, but that's not real now. Um, the things that they're saying are delusional that we've seen in the reports and stuff or, you know, that we've talked to people about the reports. They're not delusional. Um, one of her supposed delusions is that she thinks I may come after her if she got out. Well, I'm not saying I would or something. And obviously, you know, obviously, you know, the world doesn't work like that. You can't be a vigilante. But if you hurt someone's children, it's not delusional to think they may come after you. That's mm-hmm. that's a that's a logical fear. I want you to tell me yeah. when she was arrested, what she was charged with and where it stands right now. She was arrested that Friday, so the date would have been what? Let me see. The 8th would have, obviously, was Monday. I remember that well. The 9th would have been Tuesday, Wednesday, the 10th, 11th, Thursday. So Friday the 12th, she was arrested. So from the 12th at 1130 at night, she was questioned for 15 hours. They brought me in and allowed me to even go in the room and ask her where the kids were. They brought her dad in. She attacked him, knocked his phone out of his hand, and said that that he ruined her plan somehow. Um, which I find to be odd, but no one is really questioning that. So she was initially charged with parental abduction and obstruction when she wouldn't say where the kids are. And then they um, stacked on two charges of misdemeanor neglect. So she was originally charged with um, two counts of neglect, um, parental abduction, and um, obstruction. So 
each count of um, neglect could have possibly carried five years. And the parental abduction in Maryland is 60 days maximum. And uh, the obstruction is 90 days maximum. So initially it was all those kind of charges. So immediately whenever, you know, whenever we started, when I started realizing, okay, well, she has the kids and she's not bringing them back. I went and filed for emergency custody order and got that. So whenever they captured her on Friday, I, I went down there whenever I went down. I presented her with that. At that point, she has 48 hours to bring the kids back. Then they charged her with parental abduction. But um, either way, so she had all these misdemeanors piled up at this point. She said that she gave the kids to some girl named Erin in Bethesda, who apparently doesn't exist. And, you know, at that point, you know, the search, you know, was obviously already full on. As far as I understand, she's there. There's claims that she's not fit to stand trial. So tell me about that situation and what your fears are when it comes to her, her potentially being released. It's it's both. Part of the problem is there's some kind of mix up, apparently, with and I don't know if it's with the doctors at Perkins who are supposed to be schooled on this, I would imagine. But there's a mix up with, I guess, what competency really is, because the, the legal it's it's a, it's legal terminology. It's not a medical diagnosis. So legally, what it is in Maryland is, you know, who all the players in the courtroom are, your attorney, the judge, you know, the state's attorney, all that. You know what you're charged with. You understand the consequences you're facing and you're capable of assisting in your defense. So I'm having a conversation with her and she's telling me, you know, I said that the kids are still alive. I said, then why don't you just bring them back? I'm like, you know, you're you're about, you know, this is a year in. I said, you're about to face homicide charges. I said, after I said, they're holding you right now. Then they're going to press homicide charges. I said, then that's life. And she goes, well, if even if I bring them back, they're still going to charge. And I said, you bring them back and you'll walk. And she said, no, I won't. She said, they still have the charges against me. I said, Catherine, you have parental abduction, which is 60 days time served. You've been there for a year. Like you said, you have obstruction, which is 90 days time served. And then she cut me off. She goes, yeah, there's still the two misdemeanor neglect charges that carry five years each. So that's 10 years that they can keep me for. She goes, well, actually, I've been here for a year, so it'd be a year time served. So there'd still be nine left. So how was she incompetent? At this point, where does the case stand right now? So right now where it stands, she is what I guess um, almost five years in. Um, Maryland state law states they can hold her three years incompetent on misdemeanors and then five years on felonies. So at the three-year mark on September 15th, you know, a year and a half, almost two years ago now, they dropped, they had to drop the misdemeanor charges and then they recharged her with the double homicide, two felonies. Each one, it's not like, you know, each, they're, they're running together. So it's not, you know, five years and then another five years afterwards where they would hold her for 10. When they recharged, supposedly it restarted the clock. However, I've been told that, you know, Felsing can petition for all to run, what is it, I guess, not consecutively, not concurrently. Yeah, so to run consecutively. Huh? I'm sorry. You mean concurrently? Yeah. Yes, concurrently. Thank you. So if that's the case, then literally this September, she can walk out of Perkins and someone, you know, in in Damascus or Darnstown or Germantown, wherever in Montgomery County could be standing there with their kids and giant with a woman who killed two of her own children. 
Are you worried about the safety of your, if, if for whatever reason she is released, are you worried about the safety of your oldest son? Of course I am. I would have to be. Um, I'd be a fool not to be because they've literally said in their reports that she's still a danger to him. In, in talking about your children and, and everything, tell me about them. Tell me what Sarah and Jacob are like. I mean, Sarah, I used to call her my tomboy princess. Um, she was physically probably the strongest out of all three of my kids, including her older brother. When she was taken, she weighed the same as her older brother. She, she was just strong. Like I have pictures of her doing pull-ups at the park at three years old. Tell me about her personality. Tell me about their personalities and what they liked. And well, well, I mean, Sarah was just, she, she was just super sweet. Uh, she would, um, it was funny because, like, she would always let the older boy, you know, um, my older son, her her big brother, like, take toys for her and stuff. And I was like, you know, you – and I used to make him give them back or whatever and tell him it was wrong. And that's just, you know, how their relationship was. Like, um, on the last day, whenever, whenever my older son had his soccer game, I have a picture of them. And they're standing back to back. They're actually leaning into each other and, you know, touching each other where you can tell, like, you know, like, they're trying to be close together. But at the same time, like both their backs are turned and they have like these duck lip faces on like they're mad at each other. And that was their relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and, she, you know, I, I can remember at one point I told him, I said, you know, I said, your sister's really strong. One day she's going to get fed up with this, with him trying to take her stuff. So he went to take a toy from her and she held on to it and she pulled him in. And I remember she just growled in his face and he just dropped the toy and walked in his room. So it sounds like she definitely would have been a fighter. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, for sure. you know, but, but just a complete sweetheart that would do anything for her brothers, uh, just daddy's girl. You know, I mean, she was all over me. Just just my baby girl. And then Jacob, I mean, he he was probably one of the sweetest souls to, to ever be on Earth. And I'm not just saying because he's my son. I can remember, you know, one of the other kids would get put in time out and. Jacob listened at two years old. You know, there was no terrible twos. He listened to everything you said. He And he would walk over and sit and time out with them because they were upset and, and try to, like, hug them and just be there with them until they had to get up. He wouldn't get up. He would refuse. I'd be like, get up and leave, you know, leave them alone. They need to sit there. And he would say, and he would just be like, no, Dad, they, you know, they're upset. <laughs> if you yeah. were able to say something to them, if you were able to give a message to them, what would that message be? Just daddy loves you and misses you. Daddy just wants you home. Um, and no matter what, I'm always going to love them. And they are, you know, they're, they're everything. Just that, that their dad loves them unconditionally and forever. What has been the impact of this on your family? Have you guys been able to handle all of this? I mean, this is a lot. Uh, not very well. <laughs> um, you know, I, I mean, I have family members who, you know, who we don't talk as much anymore. How is your son, your oldest son, how is he handling all this? It's, I mean, it's hard. Um, you know, it, this isn't something that gets easier with time. You know, just earlier tonight, he, he asked, he asked us, he said, hey, is, um, he says, Sarah and Jacob ever coming home? And our answer to that is, you know, possibly not. We're, we're praying, we hope, but but they may never come home, buddy. You know, we're not going to make promises that we can't come good on. There's a, and we tell them, you know, there's a good chance they're never coming home. How do you manage that? How do you manage all of this, holding on to all of this in your mind? How do you deal with it? Uh, probably unhealthy compartmentalization at times. Um, 
And see, I mean, there's there's plenty of times where, you know, I'll cry the entire way I'm driving to work, uh, try to pull it together and then go do what I'm supposed to do because it's not really a choice. Um, let me see. I, you know, I, I consume a lot of time of my time by just, uh, you know, going through things online, trying to find out some seeing if some, you know, watching older press conferences, seeing if somebody said something I missed. Going over, you know, notes from conversations in my mind, you know, you know, going over the notes from the conversations I've had with her, seeing if there was something maybe she slipped and said. Going over timelines incessantly, you know, and then uh, my my partner here, she's raising my older son while I'm at work. And, you know, she's basically, she's not basically, she's his mom. She might as well, not even might as well, but she's Sarah and Jacob's mom. She spends 8 to 15 hours a day running to social media pages and, and looking for them. Uh, you know, I, I have several conversations with my private investigator, my attorney. Uh, he was my defensive tackle in high school. So he's just been an amazing support and trying to help out and do whatever he can and make connections for us. Mm-hmm. You know, um, talking to John McCarthy, the state's attorney, Ryan, the assistant state's attorney, Dimitri Rubin and I, we've had hours of conversations. Chief Frank, his boss, I've talked to him till one thirty in the morning before at night, you know. Just just consistently trying to do something every day to get closer to finding my kids or break something open. But there's no movement in three and a half years. That leads me to my next question. What about searches? How many searches have there been? Do you guys have any idea of where to search or what is that status? I mean, what has it been over the course of the years? So originally there were obviously like every weekend for, I'd say what, like the first two years we did searches first year and a half for sure you know i mean i can't even tell you how many acres or square miles or wherever we've searched but uh you know just going through maps and figuring out where she could have possibly going you know in the time frame with the car even things that are outside of the range of where the cell phone says she would have been on that sunday you know and then looking at the time that she could have disappeared you know, between Sunday night when I was at work to Monday morning when before I was up in those time frames, trying to figure out, you know, how far could she have gotten, where could she have gone, getting together with the police on where they were searching, where they were going to search so we didn't get there and mess up maybe evidence first and then we could go back after things like that. But um, getting ideas from them even, but just a ton of ways that we went through and tried to figure this stuff out. Uh, driving to different routes that we that maybe the car would, you know, where we had gotten sightings possibly, but. A lot of those turned out to be not false, but we couldn't verify it. How many searches have been conducted? How many do you think? I would say easily 150. 150 over how much of a square mile radius, you think? That I can tell you. And pretty much anywhere from Poolsville, Maryland to Clarksburg, Maryland and out towards Damascus. So from pretty much from Poolsville to Damascus and anywhere, you know, in that area that we could think of the search, we searched. It's hard to say. I would okay. have to get the maps together and try to look at, you know, what to see how, how far that would be. Right. Yeah, and I mean, then my private investigator, um, Jared, he actually had, you know, uh, had an underwater drone built. He's done some waterways and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's going out and done searches even in different places. What would you like to say to people who have helped you over all this time to help find your kids? I said this before in the media. It's just so funny because, you know, I went to high school in that area. And all I want to do was just get the hell out of that area and get out of the D.C. area and out of Montgomery County and out of Germantown for years. Um, I never wanted to come back when I did. But for this to happen, um, 
if if something like this ever had to happen, there's no place I would want it to happen but there. Um, those people took my kids in as Montgomery County's kids, essentially. They, um, I mean, the support was amazing. There was people who I hadn't heard their name or seen their face since high school who were showing up with tears in their eyes. Um, to this day, if I'm in that area, I wind up holding someone, you know, and hugging them while they cry on my shoulder about my kids. I mean, consoling them. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's incredible the way that people, you know, stepped up and did anything that they could. Like, it's funny because the media would come out there and they were like, oh, how'd you organize all this? I didn't organize anything. I'm, uh, my desk at work, I can't organize. Um, we were in the Chick-fil-A parking lot. I went and had signs made. Uh, a friend of mine from high school, he runs Germantown Copy Center. Uh, his name's Harold Springer. He's a good dude. You know, he he hooked me up and then cut me breaks on things and stuff whenever he could. Uh, you know, he, he did whatever he could to help out. Other places donated signs and stuff. And we set up my boy's pickup truck with a big banner of the kids and got flyers printed. Mm. And we were passing them out on cars. And then cars started pulling up because they saw it on the news or whatever and a bunch of news stations i guess heard we were out there and came out heck i didn't even know that the media was a tool i was supposed to use originally the first time i i almost chased them off and it was because my older son was inside the house that they were at when because they came by Lindsay's. so i made a scene out front so they could take him out back because i never wanted him on tv or his name out there you know and they're asking me questions i'm going i just i just want to find my freaking kids so then that night, whenever we're out, you know, passing out flyers, Dan Morris um, shows up and who actually, you know, I still speak to him every now and then. I talked to him the other night from the Washington Post and Chuck Carroll. He worked for a radio station area at the time that used to be a new station. Um, it was like 99.1, I believe it was. They come out and it's just those two really at this point. And we're passing out flyers and they're telling, hey, can we um, talk to you? You know, can we get an interview? Once again, to me, it was just they were out there, you know, being self-serving, trying to get a story. I didn't realize it was a tool to use to try to find my kids. And Mm -hmm. I looked at both of them and I said, yeah, I said, you can talk to me. I said, but you better make yourself useful. And I handed them both flyers. As long as you're passing out flyers, I'll talk to you. Let's go. Point. I go into um, with um, Dan Morris is walking with me. and We're passing out flyers. And I walked to the Chinese restaurant up there in Germantown, um, in Germantown Commons, and I hand the lady a flyer. I had these, you know, cheap black and white flyers. That's, you know, I was trying to print as many as I could. So I went as cheap as I could. And we were running low on money. And the lady goes, um, she goes, well, you need color flyers or whatever. I said, I know, ma'am. I said, um, I said, this stuff gets expensive really quick, though. You know, I said, but I said, believe me, I would, I would love to have that to keep my kids out there that way. And we walk out, and we're walking down towards the giant German Hill Commons, and I hear these little footsteps running up behind me. And she was like, Mr. Mr. I turned around, and it was the lady from the restaurant, and she hands me $300 and tells me to go print some, you know, some colored flyers. And oh, wow. And find my kids, you know, and gives me a big hug and says, and says good luck. You know, we're going to keep praying for you. So that right there tells you, I mean, that that's amazing. And, you know, it's, it is interesting how people – can give of themselves, especially in circumstances like this, because, I mean, that's a horrible situation to be in. And this woman who's a complete stranger dishes you out 300 bucks to help you get flyers. That's amazing. That's right. amazing. Yeah. You know, and I mean, the the VPs from my site that I work at, 
you know, I'm on the phone with them and we're talking and, you know, I'm obviously taking days and days off work. I do sales. I worked on commission. I, I wasn't getting paid if I wasn't there, you know, and, you know, and we're just talking and I'm like, yeah, man, you know, I'm starting to run low here on, on funds. And they called Staples with their personal credit cards and put five grand of flyers on. That's you know, cool they, right there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, it's, it's a sales atmosphere, you know, it's cutthroat or whatever. And they ran a skeleton crew and just told anyone there, you know, if you're going to go help Troy, then take them, you know, take whatever nights off you need to, as long as we have enough people just stay open because we still have a business to run, obviously. Mm-hmm. So there would be wow. 10, 12 people from my work up there every night helping us out. You know, I mean, just a lot of, support came out you know from places in 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 ways i didn't expect it and then like i said you know it's it's like the seneca valley family came out of the woodwork you know from my high school Mm -hmm. you know there's a there's a parking lot halfway full of people who i hadn't seen in 30 years is there anything that you want to clear up because a lot of times when a story gets out there it kind of takes on a life of its own yeah and sometimes there's some misconceived notions and things like that. Has any of that happened to you, and if so, is there anything that you want to clarify and clear up? I guess for me, it's just a matter of if i I could get one thing across to people at this point, it's that this system is so messed up whenever it comes to this stuff. I mean, Catherine Hodwa has more protections than my babies do. She has more rights than my kids. She has more right to be protected in that place than my kids have the right to be found and respected and loved. She has more rights in that place than their brother who's here, you know, who's missing his brother and sister. And the whole thing is just so messed up at this point where she could literally walk out of there in a few months and get away with killing my children. And I don't know if people really understand. So we went we went through trying to push, um, you know, a bill through. That would fix part of this because I believe it's actually unintentionally broken. When they took away the death penalty in Maryland, it used to be 10 years you could hold someone incompetent on anything that was eligible for the death penalty. The 10 years went away with it and all the felonies went to five. I don't even believe that was intentional. I think it just was it was attached to the death penalty. You guys tried to get some sort of bill going. Are you still working on that or what's going on? there? Well, I mean, the the congressional session is over and it got voted down the end by... um, Essentially, there was one, it, it got through the Senate, it got through the committees, it got through the Senate, uh, it went to the General Assembly, you know, with the House of Representatives, and and I don't know if it's just all the Democrats caucus together, or what it is, but um, there was three of them, essentially, who were against it. I figured, okay, so if it's a majority vote, they pass it. You know, if only three people are against it, it has to pass. Two of them came around whenever they heard the story and what was going on. Um, it was it was the bill was intended to be administrative and protection, not punitive. So it would have been, to my knowledge, it would have been retroactive and allowed the system to as well hold her for 10 years, as well as as protecting, you know, other juveniles who are in harm's way until essentially for the most part until their age of majority and can defend themselves. So it was, you know, a big part of it because when I first started it, I didn't even realize if it was even going to affect my case. But I was like, I was like, this state needs to start protecting children better. The bill that Troy is talking about is Senate Bill 242. It would basically extend the amount of time from five years to 10 years for a person who's confined on felony murder charges if they're found incompetent to stand trial. 
As of now, after the five-year time limit and no trial, charges could potentially be dismissed. The bill didn't pass, but Troy is planning to go at it again next year. I reached out to both of Catherine's parents' last phone numbers and didn't get any response from them. Montgomery County Police basically didn't release any new details other than what's been put out in press releases regarding searches and a lack of leads. I also reached out to State's Attorney John McCarthy's office about the case, and I'm told that they are still working the case, and they really can't make any statements about it at this time. As for Catherine's attorney, David Felson, he sent me a statement, and I'll read it in its entirety. It says, quote, We are aware of the opinions expressed by certain people through the press regarding this case. Some people have expressed different opinions at different times. It is important to note that, as the Office of the State's Attorney stated publicly, the grand jury investigation in this matter remained open over the three years in order for the state to investigate what happened to Sarah and Jacob. There have been no factual determinations made in this case. Ms. Hoggle is a person with a long-standing diagnosed history of profound mental illness beginning well before the events of September of 2014. Since her arrest, Catherine has been detained and evaluated numerous times by county and state doctors and has consistently been found to be incompetent to stand trial. People stating their opinions through the press, notwithstanding, in the United States, including Maryland, we do not force people to go to trial on allegations against them when they cannot defend themselves. There have been no determinations on what will happen with the charges in this matter. Like any other person charged with a crime, Catherine is presumed innocent of all charges. You have this whole system where she's going to, she, there's a good chance she's just going to walk out of there. Um, not only that, but the whole premise of her walking out of there is, is garbage. She's just been playing the system the entire time. And in the meantime, there's two kids, you know, who, who are gone. And there's people, you know, one of the things I want to get across to people, because some people do believe that, you know, maybe she gave them someone, maybe they're out there, maybe she convinced someone I'm abusive, put them in an underground network, whatever. That doesn't make it okay. Every scenario is ugly at this point. I don't think people get this. There is no happy ending here, no matter what happens. The absolute best case scenario is that she put them with this perfect, wonderful couple who had no idea what was going on, maybe thought they were protecting two kids, treat them as their own, put them in the best schools, they have the best Christmas ever, every single year, and all that stuff, and then we find them. And now I'm tearing them away from this family. They're so young, they maybe don't even remember me or where they came from. That's ugly. But I'm mm -hmm. also obviously not going to leave my kids you know, somewhere else. They're my babies. Another okay. scenario would be they're with someone who's as sick as she is or, or you know, people say maybe sex trafficking, things like that. Well, that's obviously terrible. I don't even know if that's a better scenario than the one the police believe. And actually, that, that's what I want to run down to run down really quickly so that I can be clear with people about mm -hmm. the theories or the things that are out there that people believe may have happened. Can you give me like the, you have three or four different kind of scenarios. Can you break those down really quick just so I'm clear about it? So we, you know, there, there are people who obviously, you know, and the police being part of it, who believe that she murdered my children, put them in a dumpster. They've been incinerated and we'll just never even find the bodies. There are people who believe 
that she actually gave them to someone and there's some family out there raising them. I've heard a theory of that they're in an Amish community in Pennsylvania because Randy went up to Pennsylvania. Um, a lot of people believe that her family knows where they are and that they're with her family somewhere in either Tennessee, Alabama, or South Carolina, or one of the Carolinas, North Carolina, wherever she has family in those three places. And that it, that she basically put them into the Scientology church with people who are going to raise them that way and who couldn't have kids, who have a lot of money. My whole thing is there's people who talk about maybe, you know, they, they're in Mexico or something with a family who was up here and then went down there with them. My whole thing is this. It's, it's, I would be hard-pressed to be convinced that she got my kids out of the country or somewhere like that or into some system when she didn't have the resources to get her off of a damn four block radius in Germantown, Maryland in five days or four days in four days, she couldn't get out of a four block radius, but I'm supposed to believe she, that my kids are in Europe or Mexico right now. It just, that doesn't, that doesn't jive with me. It just doesn't make sense. When it comes to my final thoughts about this case and the two-hour-long conversation I had with Troy, I can't help but wonder why the kids disappeared on that particular day. Why won't the mother say where her children are, or is she even capable of answering the question? I also think about how Troy has to focus on raising the one child he has left and search for the two others who were taken out of his life at such a young age. And let's talk about the theories. Investigators do believe that Catherine is responsible for the disappearance of her children. But here's a thought. Did she give them to someone who's raising them now? And what about the guilt that Troy says he feels after realizing that he missed the signs of mental illness after the birth of his first son and how it got worse over time? It's also amazing to think about how much the community has come together to help find Sarah and Jacob. I hope that someday the children will make their way back home. And if so, will they remember their family, though? That's something to think about. With all of these things lingering, so is the possibility that Catherine might possibly be released by the end of the year. I also wonder, though, if Catherine is considered unfit to stand trial with her level of mental illness, will she ever really go free? Her attorney says there is still a lot to work out on this case. So according to media reports, Catherine can't be interrogated until she's deemed competent. And that's the one thing that keeps holding this case up in the courts. Jacob was last seen wearing a white t-shirt and blue shorts. Sarah was last seen wearing a pink tank top and blue shorts. Today, the siblings would be six and eight years old. I do plan to keep tabs on this case and I will let you know what happens next. If you have any information in this case, contact the Montgomery County Police Department at 301-279-8000. If there's a story that you want me to check out, just visit me on the Intrigued Full Effect website or via email at intriguedfulleffect at hotmail.com. Again, this is the first episode of Season 2. I thank you for listening, and there will be more stories coming up. Until next time... Be safe and stay true. 
The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Intrigued Full Effect, Curious Cases, Disappearances, and Other Stuff podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the host. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The host of this podcast assumes no liability or responsibility for any activities in connection with opinions shared in the podcast. The podcast and blog associated with it shall not be used in any legal capacity or as a basis for expert testimony. Any copyright material in the podcast is approved by the owner or as part of the public domain. Music by Pond5.